0: Good evening, everybody, and and welcome to this talk, the third of a four-part suite um, on the whole question of the Global Digital Library in the 21st century. I'm particularly grateful to the Clay Foundation for their generous sponsorship of this event. We'll know, as many of you will know, is a rock star. <laughs> he has the body and the accent of many of the men who came over in what we think of as the British invasion in the 1960s. But he's not a rock star for those reasons. He's rather something of a star because how many of us here have won awards for our academic work? from the White House, or how many of us have been sufficiently privileged to give a TED talk. And we know that Will was uh, the wildly successful curator for 15 years at the Walters Art Gallery, where he, he led many pioneering initiatives in digitization certainly, but not only. What I am here to tell you is that young Will Noel was not always a rock star. In fact, I'd like to point out to everyone here that unbeknownst to many, he overcame what seemed to be insuperable odds to get where he is today. He is in some ways. The modern Horatio Alger. <laughs> and by that I simply mean this. He has dealt with, I know it's not a word we're meant to use anymore, but a severe handicap having received his bachelor's degree from Downing College, Cambridge, having done his PhD at the University of Cambridge, and then having done his postdoctoral work. In the Fens of Cambridge, <laughs> so so this is this is enough to ruin nearly any academic career, but 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 Will Will was able to overcome all of those difficulties, helped in part I think by an internship during his postdoc uh, at the Getty, which I think let him see what life was like on the other side. While at Downing, he. Uh, studied his part one, as it were, uh, in history, and then migrated for his part two to art history, where he, he certainly distinguished himself and set himself up for his doctoral work. Many of you will ask yourselves, what was the young Will Knoll really like? The answer is... A frightening prodigy (laughs) and and I know this because Paul Needham taught a course for rare book school and Paul Needham is a man who as it were takes no intellectual prisoners ever and um, there was a boy in in Paul Needham's class little will we might call him And um, every time Paul made a point, little Will said, yes, but, or certainly, and. And by the end of the five days, the 30 hours in which Paul Needham found Will Knoll well nigh insufferable if he weren't right so damn often, Paul Needham of Princeton invited Will Knoll to co-teach the course the next time he offered it. This is, in my understanding, unprecedented in the history of Rare Book School. And that tells you something about the formidable intelligence who comes before you today. So someone who has not only spoken at the White House, not only given a TED Talk, not only masterminded the whole question of the Archimedes' palimpsest, but one who is gracious enough to come before us today and share his expertise, ladies and gentlemen, will know.
1: Thank
2: you so much, Michael. It's, um, you know, normally when, when, when you do books, you, uh, the same sort of disclaimer that you get on Twitter where right, they say, uh, these are just my personal opinions and, and, and always disclaimers. And I should say that uh,
3: what I'm going to talk about tonight, hardly any of it is my own.
2: Uh, I am deeply indebted to many, many people that uh, I've worked with over the last 10 years uh, for what I'm about to say. Um, the trouble is that I don't think I'm going to all. Um, but I'll do my best. I'm particularly better to, um, to develop all the, uh, um, the promise of the digital revolution is so fantastic. The idea that you don't have to go to here the cathedral library and pull a book off the shelf and get it to you if you've got past that curator. Uh, and you can just read it on the screen. Uh, was so fantastic, is so fantastic. Uh, and we can give ourselves a pat on the back, but, you know, in some sense, we've done this. Um, this is one representation of the data, uh, of some of the data that we took at the World The Arts Museum. There's a version shelf that's on your desktop. You can just click on one of those books and you can open that, up and you can read it. Um, That's a fantastic thing. Um, I think it's such a fantastic thing. It was such a wonderful thing. Uh, That it actually, the the, the promise of it actually took us down the wrong path. Because what we thought we were doing uh, was making the invisible visible, if we weren't making the untouchable touchable. And that's what we proceeded to try and do. Uh, and the result was an awful lot of interfaces by awful lot of institutions uh, that presented their data. I just put up four, but I could put up many more. Uh, I put up the Parker Library, Penn Libraries, the British Library, and Harvard. And these guys have branded their stuff, and you've got these four completely different silos, virtual versions of themselves in the Sky. Uh, and to a greater or lesser extent and you can you can access what they're looking at. So it's pretty intractable data, really. Um, say Need these texts? Can you um, help? So, so when it came to when it came to thinking about our archive, we went to NASA. We said, "How do you how do you actually archive your data?" And they told us what they did, and we adapted it a bit, and we did what they said. So, um, and, and if you're interested in what lies behind this, I can talk about it later. But the idea was to make it. Uh, survive for the longest time possible. Um, and and I thought that, you know, no one's going to need to say uh, What we need is something so that people can look at the pictures. Just look at the pictures. So, I spent not very much money working with the fabulous people on this to create what I think was the world's first uh pattern testing interface. Um, and they did a fantastic job. Uh, and the only bit of the Red Pattern Set project yeah. that I am now paying for is, is this website. It's the only bit that I'm having to maintain. Everything else everything else is totally, totally not my whole part and the data is safe in all sorts of and I was wrong. And I was wrong because although this is, this is a fine interface, it wasn't designed by users, it wasn't built by users, it was built as a project with some very talented people and it did things that we wanted it to do. But an interface built by users doesn't do this. And an interface built by users does this, and this is how people look at the argument these pattern sets now. Uh, they do their own transcriptions, or they edit their own transcriptions, and they just do a a Google mapping interface. And that's how the scholars actually work on the RPM use pattern now. Uh, someone just got a that just said, rang out one day and said, I've done this. Well, I said, fantastic. Uh, it's his. And when it's not mm-hmm. used anymore, it might go away. But the fact is that people are interested in having the data and we allow them to do with the data what they like. Um, and the core data is, is sitting up the load app and it's absolutely fine. <coughs> so, so what does really should be peaceful data look like? Uh, everybody tells you that it shouldn't but data actually should. So it should be sustainable, it should be useful, it should be complete, and it should be known. And I don't think that many people can argue with this. Um, which is completely amazing when you look at the number of manuscript archives out there that aren't sustainable, for aren't useful, aren't complete, and aren't known, which is why I still talk about this. Sustainability is an interesting thing. People, people tend to think, I mean think about sustainability, but they think about money. Um, If you're proud of your data and you want it to last forever, you need an infinite amount of money. So, money is not the way to think about sustainability. The way to think about sustainability is to think about the cheapest possible way in which you can do what you do. And that means keeping it incredibly simple, keeping it more or less designed sit there. And anybody else use the data for what they want, and they can take on the sustainability issues for their particular projects, but the data is fine. So it needs to be cheap. Uh, and so this is what we did with imaging the authors' art museums, and we just put them out as uh, a set of flat files, really. Um, there's more, but basically just files. So it's got to be usable. What does usable mean? Well, it, it's got to be well documented. It's got to have authority in a sense. I'll show you some documentation in a minute. It's also got to be free. Um, it's got to be free because if you're dealing with books, if you're whether they're, whether they're, whether they're printed books or manuscripts. You've got so many images that if you're going to charge by the image, you're just going to mount mount the costs exorbitantly. And who knows how big your data set is that you want to search. So it's basically got to be free. You should in fact just be able to take it. There is no reason why that's that's not possible. and you should be able to use it, and you should be able to use it uh, for whatever purpose you like, because that's precisely what digital information is good for. Um, so we have readme files, uh, and just to go through a bit of this the licensing, the use, the licensing for um, all Walter's images, all the I these images, is Creative Commons really want to masters. so you, as long as you have attribution, you can do whatever you want with it. And the argument for this was that the Walters Art Museum is free to walk into it and it's public. And the idea is that if you're public in this world and free in this world, then you should be public and free on the web, uh, which is just a fraction as a cost of being free in the in physical world. And as a result of this, um, I should say, actually, that the reason that we went creating Commons was because of a guy called Carl Mallard, who we got to know on the Unions project, and he, I was an advisor for uh, this NEH project, and he said he wouldn't be an advisor unless we published it under a Creative Commons license. So I said, OK, I'll publish it under a Creative Commons license. Only when I got the money did I really look into what a Creative Commons license meant. Um, And uh, I was pretty lucky and now all the art Museum is Creative Commons. You need to say who sponsors your project. You you might give advice as to how they're supposed to cite it. You need to give meta descriptions of what the data is. Um, You need to talk about the standards. Um, you need to give information on your directory structure and actually have a template meeting that will tell you how to uh, access the data in a number of different ways, so you could actually ask sync update data and just download the entire data set with about three keystrokes. Um, and, of course, you know, digital projects are about people. People actually make this stuff. Um, yeah, so it should be complete. Uh, this is weird, but it's amazing how many projects they need to the be beta that capture. Um, if, it's, if, if you're going to capture, I don't really care for what resolution you capture, but if you capture a certain resolution, you should obviously give out that resolution. Um, you can give derivatives as an option. Um, but there's no reason to hold it back. Uh, if it was worth capturing, it's worth presenting, it's worth sharing. And the same with the data, with the metadata. Um, I suppose there are a few bits of metadata that you might not want to share. Uh, but they're very few. Value. Uh, if you've got dodgy problems, then you might not want to share. But in general, you want to put out what it is that you capture. And finally, it should be known. And the reason it should be known is because your data is going to die if it's not used, so you need to get it known. Um, and so it needs a discovery layer uh, for human readers and for machines. So we put a discovery layer on top of our data for the Walters manuscripts. Uh, here is our discovery layer. Um, you've got manuscripts here. Uh, you can browse the images, you can get a manuscript description, or you can just get the TEI. So here are the images alone, and you can get the cover of 1200 dpi or a 300 dpi or a standard purpose JPEG or a PyMan. And you just go through the book like that. Uh, there's the TEI, so it's completely sort of machine searchable. And here is a, and here is, we wrote the simplest style sheet to merge the TEI. Um, with the with the images. Um, and, uh, and that's what you, end, what you end up with, with uh, images of each of the illustrated pages. Um, so this is not a website of, you know, it's hardly any brand information here. It's just our data and we put it out and we allow other people to do uh, what they want with it. So the trouble with it, if you put it in any one interface is that if you put something into an interface, you might be enabling some kind of functionality, it will be denying other kind of functionality. So this is a useful way of presenting data. Um, this data is streamed through, uh, actually through Stanford, but going to. Um, Going out of T at the University of St. Louis and people can transcribe, group transcribe a manuscript. Uh, if you uh, want to, then um, this is what adopted. it, and I now need to click on that thing. Uncle, how do I click on that thing? Can you click on that for me? You can't hear me. Um, Okay, so can I move? Yeah. this
3: is Oh.
2: Okay. Never mind. It's just true you are all, but um so It every and you know, and the trick about this is is, 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 a, is to fall out of love with your website and fall in love with your data and realize that that's what really interesting. And and I've got no great love of Flickr. But unlike the Wall Garden Zimmer website, which is about the 475,000th most popular website in the world, Flickr is the 35th. So we put our on And uh, we put a number of manuscripts and here's an individual manuscript and there's an image. Uh, I'm not paying for this at all. Oh, I'm mean, paying $25 a year because I like to look at the stacks. Um, it comes with a mobile app for $4.50. Uh, and I'm just taking snapshots of my computer screen. there's a way of around the manuscript. Yeah. Um, and the metadata is fine, it's as good as you want to put it in. e is then the same. So you can now cross-search on flip-flip between e and the uh, waters, and you'll get aggregated data. Um, and you get other people putting up your data and doing with it what they want. So this is uh, an Ottoman Atlas, 17th-century Ottoman Atlas of superior Reis. That is in the archive, put together by someone in Boston Maps, and it's a great archive of Boston Maps that's existing on Flickr. You can just create a group and put it in. Our maps now take their place in a cultural context of other maps, and you can reach entirely new audiences doing this in a global digital library. This is my favourite, Marvin 92. Uh, He put together a gallery on Flickr called Muslim, and these are the 16 images that match. Muslim to him. Uh, and he included a Walter's Art Gallery map, previously truly unknown, properly cited, put it next to an image of the Tarzan Harp. My institution was very interested in branding. I think that this is a wonderful example of branding. And I don't know much about Marvin 92 because he's not as big as metadata as I am. Uh, But these are some of his friends. We are truly reaching a global audience for our our books here. Um, This is one of my favorite images from the Waltons. It is a sorter and office of the dead. The scribe has written his text. And uh, he missed out a line here. And in most medieval manuscripts, the, the artist comes along after the scribe. So the artist has pulled up this line of text, inserted it into the right place. And uh, in conventional publications, it was produced in black and white. It was in a learning journal, I think, of the Warburg and Courtauld Institutes. And you know, it was read by unusual people. Uh, you tweet it. Um, and in one day, you suddenly have an audience of 999 people. Um, and the Walters Project has just been going for three years. It's now hit three million views, uh, which is nice, and there's many more views than they get on, on, on their normal website. Um, an important blog is, is in, in, in the Islamic world is, is, a, is a blog called Muslim Matters, and they have their pictures of the week. And uh, there's a wall of manuscript Quran up there. And, of course, that's not the point of this thing. The point of this thing is that I'm reaching a completely new audience and that. This is a curious one. We have a handbook of Christian love. A uh, 14th century Dirt found Delph manuscript that ended up on cool Christian dating sites. Just <laughs> <laughs> kind of fun. Um, but we are also on serious, solidly, uh, websites like um, this is uh, Marxist's digital mathemundi. He can just take our data and put it in. He doesn't have to pay us any money. He pays other people a lot of money for his data. He should not have to. Uh, Shared canvas is something out of uh, the University of Stanford. Um, and uh, they're playing with our data. And I should say that the museum was a museum. It was good at looking after pots. It was never going to be good at looking after data. Um, this was really world class data for important cultural heritage objects, and it was published under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Um, so Stanford just took it. They just took a lot of data. I don't have a sustainability platform anymore. I don't have to work. Funny enough, it was clearly common data that I was working with a lovely guy called Melbourne, Britain. And um, he just wanted to take the data. The staff of lawyers insisted on writing a contract. It was extremely funny, because by writing a contract, all they could do is limit themselves. <laughs> and they limited themselves to sending Regular updates on how our data is doing. <laughs> Very sweet. They did it. Which is lovely. They could have just taken it. I, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. I just think it's... I, think, I do think it's wonderful. And I do think, you know, looking at a global digital library, then we need to... We while well, we do need to look after our own cultural assets because it's our responsibility. And maybe we know that. We there are other places Rather than will go it in one of the rational editions, and they can it in ways that we can't the distribution of itself uh, is a very important um, uh, thing in, in terms of survival. So, you know, the Walter's Art is now, manuscripts well, now are truly a global resource, not only in the sense that they're available around the world also in the sense that they've been downloaded around the world. So, we have uh, the data set at the moment is about 10 terabytes in grey. In 2012, uh, 90 90 terabytes of data was downloaded. So, essentially the data set was replicated nine times around the world. So, hopefully the data is I mean, it would be hard to reconstruct if the standard site died and the internet software consortium site died and the water site died. They all died. But you could. Um, and this is just a snapshot of, of you know, something. So, so the results of putting these images out in this way, which doesn't sound radical anymore, Except that very few people are doing it even now. Um, is that if you at least last year and I may I haven't Last year if you, if you did a Google image search for illuminated manuscript Gospels on Google, this is what you get. And you might have heard of some gospels, but some famous ones, Lindisfarne, Kells. <laughs> Rabula, Henry the Lion, your first hit is Walters Manuscript W4, it's a sweet gospel book, but it's not, it's not the Gospels of Henry the Lion. Uh, that's Kells. that's Walters, that's Rabula. that's Coexameraeus, don't know what that is, that's Walters 8.05. That's waters, 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 that's waters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's waters, uh, you know, it just goes on, I mean, it it's been nice nicely pepper them. Um, and I'm not religion-specific, I can do it with piranhas as well. Uh, any, any image here that's a single fobie is essentially a water's image. And And so what's in it for the institution here? One of the things that's in it for the institution is branding. So, you know, why do people go to the Louvre, they go to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa? Why do they go to see the Mona Lisa? Because they already know what she looks like. Why do they know what she looks like? Because there are images of her absolutely everywhere. And one of the things is that people just don't know what's in space. Well, this is the one of the greatest things that digital images can do, is that they can make them available uh, as never before. Uh, that's all very well, but what about actually using the data that you can learn from the people who are looking at your stuff? This is a wonderful project that is, headed uh, really passed through a few times, called the Pen Problems Project, and um, it's part of a clear grant um, to the hidden collections grant, trying to trying to um, get decent provenance information for manuscripts, for books that they're cataloging very quickly. So every time they come across a piece of provenance, that's will stick it up on and ask to identify it. And here's one. Um, X Libris RH, we don't know who it is. Uh, we tweet about it, and Sarah Werner comes back and says, This is it, it's Robocop Top designed by Andre Rubier, and gives us a, a URL with more information. Um, now, Sarah Werner is not, not your average crowd member. <laughs> uh, you know, she's at the Folger Library, she's a digital humanist, she's got a huge set of skills at her disposal. Uh, to find out what this book page is. But she was honest enough to describe how she did it. She went to Google and she typed in next Libris Markov Asia. <laughs> um, so there we are. That's an identification. This is a rather wonderful one. Uh, Belongs to Celestino de Havana Cuba. right? So we type it in we to Celestina Gioristi for the back of Cuba. And we we'll get the comment and it says, That's my grandfather. Where is this book? Uh, the book is at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. You can see the catalogue entry for it here. Here's the complete story. My father, Celestina Gioristi, attended UPenn in the late nineteen thirties and then he had to go to Cuba to run the business, and then Castro the came along and it ends up yes, my granddaughter. Applying pen and see if you think can ring. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> But that was done simply by typing so as the majority be So I th- someone referred to crowdsourcing as crowd the other day. Um, and, and that's what you do. You When you crowdsource something you have you know, a few power users and then a very long tail, so it's But one of our power users uh, helped us with this one. This is, we have no idea what this is, and it turns out to be a book belonging to Narz's Lab and is was telling us that the NL monograph points again to lab and num- number 24 points to an inventory, inventarium of the libraries, the a family in Augsburg, in this case, to verified by Dr. Kunast, one of the editors of the library catalogs at Konstanz, uh, you ua 22 is a common shelf mark used in Jesuit libraries. So you know you're getting you're getting you're getting serious information by very dedicated people as well, um, and you can fold that into your back into a bibliography. It is rather key that people can do whatever they like with these images. Uh, this comes from a, um, a wonderful declaration of the air was Incunable. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's Helen and Paris in the same boat that just ended up on classical philology because Presumably the editors of the classical philosophy, right? They're well-connected people, they have lots of people, lots of, lots of options, but they were about to go at press. They needed, a, they needed an image. They didn't have any time. They typed in Paris and Helen to Google, and then they brought a license and, and, and put it up there. Um, this is something that was identified, we really misidentified it, and it turns out to be the bookcase of. Maria uh, Piccolomini, identified by one of our other power users, uh, who was so pleased to have found this that they actually did a Wikipedia webpage and incorporated it into Wikipedia. 500 of our book plates are now on Wikipedia, which is which is quite nice, quite a nice takeout. Um, so so you know, normally when I give this talk, I'll just go back a bit and talk about the data and what it looks like. No one disagrees with me, and yet no one does what we do. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know why that is, um, but it's amazing. Um, and one of the things I should say is that one response is that people say that this is all very well if you're a small institution and you don't have a lot of money, which is the fundamental misunderstand. If you misunderstand. If you've understood what I'm saying, if you, think, if you think that that's what I'm saying, that's not what I'm saying. If you've got lots of money, by all means build a flagship. But for goodness sake, do this too. Um, okay. So so the second part of my talk is David White's in the room. I'm incredibly trepidatious like this. <laughs> but whatever. Um, I'll start with some fun. So, uh, the other day, we had a hackathon at Penn. Dot arranged for a 48 hour hackathon in Special Collections Centre at Penn. And uh, we gave them some data to play with. And one of the lovely things about the digital humanities is, is that all sorts of people can help and you get a great sense of community. It's the opposite of the enorm- anonymity of the web it's so often. Uh was trying to break down, so here are our guys in the Special Collection Center. They were going for 48 hours flat out, so they were sleeping on our brand new furniture. They are brand new. If you give them some caffeinated cookies and they're up and running, they and they actually came out with three, with three projects, and the one I like the most is called Gresham Text. They took uh, an alphabet book, a 16th century alphabet book from our collection from Flickr and uh, and you can just type in, your, you can type in your name and it'll come up with your name as in the 16th century. So I took up um, that name and you put it in Flickr and, 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 here, and here it comes up again and if you don't like it, it can come up again. Yes, it's Threats and balance. Um, Now, I do think that they're rather fun. I think that they're a marketable commodity. I think that you can probably get people to make their own dice with your name, if you want to. One of the interesting things about the dice is that you can't tell from this image how I made it. Um, you don't know what the structure of the dice is. So I could have done it by getting a square cube and cutting out these bits and sticking them on. And I could have done it by getting one strip, working it out so that when I folded it over, it all went sort back, of turned into a cube. And I could have done it by taking two and just wrapping one around the other and doing it doing the cheating. But you can't tell what I did from the digital image. Now, this doesn't matter with how I construct the dice. But it does matter when you're looking at books on the web. Right? I mean, this is a this is a blank page, and you don't know what it's a blank page, and you don't know what the relationship between this page and that page is. Um, and this is a, this is an issue. Um, yeah, There's the next page. If you're, if you look at this diagram, and you show it to an art historian who works on works made between about fourteen forty and. 1540 in Flanders. They will be able to tell you that this is in all likelihood the opening three choirs of a Flemish book of house. And more than that, that the calendar is written in one column over two pages. So this choir of six does January to June, this choir of six does July to December. This choir does the opening of the Hours of the Virgin, or the Hours of the Cross, or something like that. And I know that because this singleton is going to be, is just going to have a miniature in it, and it's actually going to be made thicker parchment than the rest, of the rest of the manuscript, and that's why it's a singleton, it's an inserted singleton, which is a difference between French books of ours and French books of ours. And so, once you know that, uh, you can understand what's going on here. Here is a choir that's separate from this choir, and this page is black because of the structure. And although it's black here, I should say, that very often in books of like ours, it's precisely this black, black page that's got lots of useful information on what's the complex of the problems and the conditioning. So we need to know about the structure of stuff. Uh, but for some reason, it's hard to do this on the web. It's hard to be able to get a sense of the structure of a manuscript on the web. So, what do we need to do to make that happen? Well, one thing you need to do is have a hell of a lot images that are freely available. Um, they need to be sustainable, usable, completely known to you. And then you need to be able to manipulate. It. And to, man- to manipulate them, you need a formula. Uh, and the collation formula really goes back to uh, Henry Bradshaw in about 1861. And he, and, and he was the foundation of the collation formula that we various, you know, ordering there. Funny enough, Henry Bradshaw's collation formula was he used it indiscriminately for manuscripts and for printed books. But the history of the collation formula between printed books and manuscripts is very, very different. The manuscripts, the first person to really take that was Henry James, was was Montague Rhodes James uh, in the catalogues for Cambridge Library. And Montague Rhodes James was no Henry Bradshaw, uh, and he misunderstood a lot of what Bradshaw was saying. And nowadays, with a lot of manuscript scholars, it's fair to say, not many of them know that they owe to Henry Bradshaw. Uh, their collation formulas. Um, but and they're not very reflective about it, with the exception of a few people like NROG Manuscripts and Take Angle Sachs. And very often they make up their own. There is no standard collation used by manuscript source. Um, we just make up our own. And
3: whatever you think of this diversity,
2: and I suppose there's merit in diversity. It would be nice when people invented their collation formulas, if they at least told you what they were doing. And we don't even do that. Which is rather surprising, given that it's right at the core, right at the core of what we do. Um, Printed uh, books went entirely, went entirely in a different way uh, with Ray and, and, and then with and Bowers and then with Gascore. Um, and there is, I think, a standard in Anglo-African bibliography, and essentially it is it is this standard. Now when you're trying to apply this, when you're trying to Get every manuscript in the world on the internet, virtually this band. You do need a stand. And manuscript scholars don't have one. So, I got interested in looking at uh, the powers brain standard, and trying to understand it. And I came across a number of issues that um, I thought were at least interesting and very different from manuscripts. And one of the interesting things about when you look at the collation, you suddenly really hone in on the structure of the stuff, and you realize that this has implications for how you understand the difference between the manuscript and printed book in quite interesting way. the first one is that, as described it, you're you you're comparing your the collation in your manuscript with the with notion of an ideal Manuscripts we don't have ideal copies. We don't have to do that. Um, and I just searched the ideal copy and came up with, came up with that. Um, the notion of ideal copy is sort of, is sort of problematic to me um, in two ways. One is, one is a conceptual way. I don't know what the ideal collation is. Presumably it's as it came off the press but before it was banned. Um, but I wonder whether it existed ever for an entire print one, I'm not sure. But the other thing is that when you're dealing with an actual digitised set of images on the web and you're trying to show how they were made up, the idea of collation just gets in the way. You just want to show how your book is made up. So referring your collation to an ideal collation and say how yours is different is not really a point. I also think that you know, it's hard enough to get a collation right without also thinking about the ideal collation. I suppose that an ideal collation, an ideal copy, bears some of the same relationship as a transcription does to an addition. So, Relation of a book, an individual copy has a similar relation to the ideal copy in the sky. Um, but for me, anyway, it's hard enough to do a relation, a good relation, for a single book, let alone worry about the ideal copy. So I just found that a trick. And I suppose the ideal collation The notion of an ideal collation is fascinating because it bears bears directly on what to me is the fundamental difference between a manuscript and a printed book. A manuscript is a unique thing. A printed book is a random slice. It's a random cross-section through an edition. And you can only really understand the whole process as the printing of an entire edition and having a printed book as a wrapping cross section through it, which is fundamentally I think the difference between a match and a printed book.
1: And it really shows up in the
2: in this situation where you have a single leaf from two printed books, and it couldn't be attached, to, it's got to be attached to one by or another. But one binder might attach it to this choir, and one binder might attach it to this choir, which is a, which is an issue that the manuscripts we don't have, um, and that's why in printed in in, in printed you have the chi. Um, when you're thinking about so what I'm looking forward to, or what I'm trying to trying to say, is that we need a collation formula that works for computers. And I think that the manuscript work can't help you because it doesn't have a stand. And the Greg's bowers gascot formula doesn't help you uh, because things like the chi make it difficult for machines to read. Um... The other thing that I think that ours and Gassel have is because they can, because they can, they freight a structural, something that's structural, they freight it with descriptive information. Um, so you've got the signatures here written out, and that's descriptive of the signature marks that you'll get at the end or beginning of each choir. And actually that thing, which would be very, very hard to pass in a computer, can be reduced to this as long as you take the descriptive information out and put it elsewhere in your your description. Um, So when I was cataloging and setting up the guidelines for the cataloging of the manuscripts of the Walters Art Museum, I had an awful lot of people doing relations and I had to have something. And I didn't know about all the great battles, Gaspers stuff, because I was a manuscript guy. And I had lots of people working on the. Actual collations. I wanted something incredibly simple, and I wanted something that was clear and unambiguous and descriptive, simply of the structure of the book, not as it was in the Middle Ages, but just as it is now. And so this is a choir of six, this is a choir of six. I didn't want pluses and minuses because I'm, all, I'm, all I'm concerned to do is to get the structure of the codex as it exists. I'm not saying whether relief is missing or was intended to be black. Like, I just want the structure. And if you just want the structure, then you can get rid of this distinction between pluses and minuses, and you can just treat then as bifolia, and you treat all of them as bifolia. And then when you want to single them, you just minus the one you don't have. And it's incredibly simple. And it's not describing anything. It's not describing what the signatures are. It's not making any value judgments about content. It's just about structure, and about structure as it is. Um, and this is in the this is in the TEI, and here in the machine that we did, we couldn't we couldn't do sub we couldn't do superscript, so we just did it we just did it in parentheses. Um, but so I've got I've got two uh, two fly leaves. The first part is a choir of eight leaves minus the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Choirs two and six are eight leaves. Choir seventh is the is acquired eight leaves minus the fourth leaf and so on. Um, and then um, Dot took this stuff uh, and generated this out of our out of the collation. And from this she created an SDG quark. Each of, the, each of the choirs. And from and looking at choir, why do you get something like that? And you can automatically generate it. And this is the beginnings of being able, I think, certainly in manuscripts, to be able to disband virtually any manuscript that was ever digitized. And I think that this is kind of neat. Um, I need to be very clear, I think, and Don wants me to be clear, that this is not about making a real, recreating the structure of a book as it exists in the real world and putting it on the web. This is about using the web to take apart manuscripts and Pull out folios and see conjoints and see how they are, and see if them compare at the same time. And if I've been able to do that while I was writing my PhD, I could have done it in time. <laughs> um, and and I think that that's exciting. I think, that, and that's sort of where we've got to. But there is a there is one more thing, which is that. If you do it with manuscripts, manuscripts don't have the format issue. So, or at not, least n- not in the way that, I mean, parchment manuscripts don't have the format issue in the way that paper ones do. Uh, and it might be that you don't actually need a collation to do this with parchment manuscripts. You just tell the computer that one recto is attached to eight verso, one recto is attached to eight recto, and you know, you can do it. But with with in formats, and you might not end up by the way, with something like that but, but for every manuscript in the world once you've got, um, once you 've got different formats, you probably do need a computerizable collation uh, so here you 've got a uh, chancery folio, quarto octavo, duodecimo and Dio, yes, the relationships between the pages, of course, are not just conjurants, they're much more complicated than that, and you need to be able to recreate something like that. And if you can do that on the, on the web, then you can, I don't know, virtually by Shakespeare's first folio, you know, the individual copy, the furnace copy, the UDA copy. And you can see the sheets as they came off the press. And I think that that's a really exciting thing. But there are two things you need to do. One is you need a truly global digital library. And the other is, I think, you need a new system of collation. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Happy. Why a non-commercial share alike license rather than just a CC BY that would be a simple attribution or a public domain license? Right. Is it say non-commercial? Yeah. Okay. It's now it's now CC BY. Okay. Good. Um, and um, and the honest answer to that question is because when I spoke to Carl Mann, he said he could go with nothing nothing less restrictive than a non-commercial license that's why I went. Yeah, non-commercial licenses are a problem now because we're moving into a digital economy where if you make something non-commercial with the best intention in the world, suddenly you're not going to be able to use it because so many things have a commercial value, Uh, so many educational resources that that suddenly your data can't be used anymore. So, yeah. Um, And Archimedes was always CC by. Why not why not public domain? Uh, No good reason, just fear on my part that the public domain grows and shrinks. Um, And so uh, I thought that if I did CC, and I might even be illegal uh, putting a CC BY on this, because there should be no it's slavish copying right uh, so 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 there's a real question mark about whether it can even be cc but um, um, but I didn't I, I couldn't have persuaded my trustees to have gone public domain um, and scary things do happen to public domain things so if I maintain the copyright, then I can choose to yet release it in the public domain or do something with it. I could release it in the public domain as well. I suppose, mm-hmm. could not I? Haven't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. Jerry. When we're very change changing
0: the system of information
3: how would you begin to try and do that given the institutional problems that you're facing
2: given given the hap- inertia given the inertia that I'm facing
0: which is an institutional problem I think.
2: Um, well I think that I don't know enough about the issues in the printed book world, but the issues in the, in the manuscript world are perfectly solid. because no one is totally wedded to a collation system. The manuscript people—they aren't wedded to a collation system. They just—they just—they just use what they—they just use what they. they, just use what they know what they screw up. I try again. And I think that everyone could probably just agree to go to, let's use Neil Kerr, right? I I don't think that would be hard because the advantages would be so enormous if we could all get on the same page. And I think that that would be easy. I think, I've only just discovered, you know, uh, I mean, A, the power of the collation formula of Bowers and Gaskell and Gray, and B, the passions that this can arise. I would say that all I really want to do, and this is, I'm stealing from Dominic, here, is that the collation formula doesn't matter. What matters, I will quickly say, is that you can on the computer screen this by your book. So you don't even see the collation formula, right? You don't even see it. It's just a mechanism for successfully taking apart your book, that's, that's all it is. And if Bethany can write a script that can successfully pass Hours in a computer. I think I'll. I think that's great, and maybe we can use hours. It just seems to me unnecessarily complicated with all the descriptive information that's tapped into it. Is that helpful, Bethany? Can you do it?
4: I think it's not impossible. I think, I think you may be worrying a bit too much that, that, the, um, that the formula is laden with. Descriptive material. Uh, I think a lot of that can be abstracted out. Uh, I'm actually still more attracted to this blasphemous idea that I had at dinner last night of um, of using um, of, of scanning the page images of books in the high Trust corpus or the Google Books corpus for um, for page signatures. And trying to automate the sort of collection and um, and uh, you know parsing of structure of books, that knowing that it'll be um, it'll be messy, it'll be inaccurate, but that for many many books you may actually get um, a kind of uh, if you have, if you have a large enough sample you may get a really interesting kind of cross section that um, you can begin to visualize and think about how. Um,
1: how,
2: how you collect that data, sort of passively. I think I'm watching that now too. Yeah, so sort of digital. Um, uh, and and in a sense, what you do is you is you bypass the formula entirely. Exactly. exactly. You, just, you,
3: you do what
4: you can
2: to, um, to uh, treat these these digital circuits seriously. That's really interesting. The, the, um, the okay. trouble is that you can only do that if you've got, in printed books, if you've got the signatures you often have. In okay. manuscripts, in a manuscript you very often you yeah. don't. You well, in even
4: books you won't you always, and you'll miss a lot. But, but yeah. with a massive, massive sample, you might start to see some interesting
0: things. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to be clear that I understand. When you talk about, as it were, visually just binding the books, what you're really saying is, you just want to know about the relationships of conjugacy, right? Is, is that what you're
2: really saying? Yeah, that's what, what I'm saying is that I want. I, that, yeah, but I think that that's really important. I'm not suggesting it is. I and, and, understand and, what we means is that we're, we're
0: using new terms, right? We're predicating new terms... For, for new ideas. So I just want to understand that I, just, that I get what you're saying when you talk about doing this digital disbounding. And what you're saying is you want to understand the relationship of leaves in terms of conjugacy and perhaps within the sort of nesting within an individual choir. Yeah. And, that,
2: and that's what you want to know. What I want to do is recreate sheets as they came off the press.
0: I don't think that's what you want to do. I don't think that's what you want to do at all, because when the sheets come off the press, they're not collated in any way. So so when sheets come off the press, you're not interested in them at that point, because when a sheet comes off the press, even when it's perfected, it's just a sheet. It's not part of a choir until that choir is assembled by a whole other set of workers, usually women, I might add, and usually not on that same site so so you don't want to know about the sheets right when they come off the press because that's, that's uh, not the same thing right it seems to me because because you know um let's just say you were printing a folio in fours. yeah You know, you're going to print the inner form, you're going to print the outer form, and you're going to stack them up, and they're going to be in sheets. They're not going to have any relationship to until there's another process later on, which has to do with folding and beading and sewing. And then you want to know about the relationship, but you don't want to know what what, what they look like when they come off the press, because they're just sheets when they come off the press.
2: Right? Wow. Well, maybe maybe that's what I want to do. Maybe that's what I want to do. Okay, because there's no such thing as a choir when it comes off the press. No, it doesn't. A choir doesn't
0: exist. No, when it comes it's. But there's a perfectly legitimate reasons to want to be able to reconstruct
1: the sheet as it came off the press. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but that doesn't have anything to do with the choir at, different, at different, that no, point. but it's not
0: uninteresting. Right. It's it's not uninteresting, but that's not the project we've been hearing about for the last half hour, right?
2: Well. Can we go back to my last slide? Just to be... I mean, if you have... If you have a... If you have a... If you understand the structure of your book, you can... You can... You can... This is, a, this is a choir, this is not a choir, this is not a choir, <laughs> <laughs> not a choir. <laughs> of eight leaves. It's, it, it's, it has the potential to be a choir of eight leaves.
0: Right. And a folio in sixes is going to be, which is the structure of the first folio, as everybody in the room knows, is a series of individual sheets that has no nesting in it until those sheets are assembled by somebody else. And it comes off the press, it's not discernible as a folio in sixes. Right. It just isn't. Right. So so my point is. No, what so what so world, what you get in the manuscript world in the creation of a choir where the substrate is assembled
2: first. It is discernible as a folio and sixes, because what we've got are Well, you've got all sheets, and you've got the text on sheets, and you know that the way to put these together is to to nest them in this way. Okay.
0: Uh,
2: so, So I stick to it that I want to actually, what I want to do is to recreate the sheet as it came off the press, or as described, wrote it. David's been incredibly patient while I've been butchering. Sir? Uh,
3: I'm not happy with the way you're phrasing your question that you need a replacement for the relational formula because your purpose, as you it for this project is really quite different from the purpose of the relational formula, which is basically analytical. And what I don't like about your system for... Uh, <clears throat> Assume, posit that every, <clears throat> you start with folio, and you're removing things, you have a, a, mm-hmm. a packet, mm-hmm. everything is removed mm-hmm. rather than something being mm-hmm. inserted. Mm-hmm. And if you, you can certainly do that for a printed book, it's of a system where you're simply describing the little packets you can see, mm-hmm. but that's not analytical, because it doesn't <laughs> describe the copy in hand, but not how the copy not that but that's the point—to reduce it to the most <coughs> I content,
0: so that it can be remediated, repurposed in different kinds of ways, no matter who approaches
2: it. Correct. I mean, I mean, if my if my system has any merit, uh, it's not. It doesn't have any of the information mm-hmm. that a proper Bauer's collection has. In. It doesn't have any of the descriptive information. It doesn't have any of the implied textual information.
4: I think this is why I'm intuiting that the problem becomes more interesting at scale than it does mm-hmm. on the level of a, of, of a single book, mm-hmm. right? right? Because you're, you're, you're actually not purporting to do to do it. Now.
3: You're not, you're not I'm analyzing not, a particular not. instance. You're
4: actually looking for
2: trends. You may be looking for patterns. You may be, you don't know what you're looking for is the, is the issue. All I'm looking for. <coughs> so here's here, here's something that that we were just talking about at lunch, and it takes you in a funny place. But but you have a physical object. You throw all the data that you can about a physical object into the into the digital world. Let's just say that you wanna reprint the first photo shape. You've got a 3D printer, right? And, and you wanna take it back out of the digital world and, and make it. There are all sorts of funny things that you need to feed into your 3D printer that you're not gonna be able to do like 17th century paper, right? Well, But what, you, what I want to get out I want to get out of the digital world is not just the order of the pages but which ones are conjoined and, and not, just which, not just which ones are conjoined within the gallery but also how they fold up in format and I think that some version of the formula that I propose might help you retrieve that information. That's all I wanted to do. So
1: it's really not a replacement, but but rather a a simplification for a particular purpose. Right. Which may not work. Right.
0: Except for the front matter, which may have various formulas, isn't every 23 sheet quarto the same, essentially, in this? That you're not paying attention to what's a cancel and, and, and so on. I mean, it, it's essentially, if you sort of crowdsource, you know, what you're talking about, right? Right. You distant read rather. I apologize, and you know, so you're going to have some front matter and some sort of end matter where you know you might rip the sheet in half and put some here and some there, but basically. Every 25-sheet quarto is identical to every other 25-sheet quarto if you're not interested in printing variation, if you're not interested in cancelanda, if you're not interested in signature marks, if you're not, I mean, otherwise, they're all the same, aren't they? I mean, it, with those exceptions which you may or may not attend to, what the front matter is like, and you know, then you're kind of in a pie and pie again, which is what we're supposedly trying to get rid of, because because um, a quarto is a quarto, or a folio and sixes is a folio and sixes, unless you start to attend to the detail. I'm not trying to be the bad guy here. I'm trying to understand what the productive. So what if productive hermeneutic is here? Because it's got to be a tool for interpreting the way the world is. And if you prescind from bibliographical
3: detail,
0: I don't know how it's productive <coughs> for understanding the way the world is historically. Does that make sense? Because then all books start to look more—all books in the same format start to look more or less alike because you're prescinding from all the detail that makes them different. I don't. I don't. Can I that? Sure. <laughs> See, I'm, not, I'm,
2: not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we're the same from, from detail. I'm saying that it would be extremely useful when you're really studying a book to have it this bad for you. To study it like this as well as as well as, as it is structured. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think that we can have a mechanism, I think that we need to develop a mechanism to do that, whether it's Bethany's thing or 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 my approach. And I think that being able to study well, I don't know enough about printed books, but being able to do it in manuscript is incredibly helpful. You can work out printing by forms where they make errors, that sort of thing, in great detail. And it's much, much easier to do if you have this visualization than if you have it if you have it bound up. Yeah, well, can I say something? So the the, the the thing that got me sort
1: of on this was um, a book about a manuscript. So uh, Ben Withers is an art arch- historian. <coughs> A book on um, Claudius, um, British Library copy of Claudius anymore, which is an illustrated text of the manuscript, and it's incomplete and it's done in pieces. And he makes all these arguments about he makes arguments about the dating of the manuscript and how it was created. And he's a great, he's a good writer, so I can understand it all. But it was also it was really difficult for me to conceptualize arguments without having the manuscript in front of me. And so the book actually comes with a CD, with all the images, pictures of the pages of the book. But there's <coughs> still no sense of the structure of the book. And I was thinking to myself, as I was reading this book for the fourth time, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was something I could do where I could see how this was put together and I could follow his argument? And that was when, that's what sort of started us along this road. So, so for me, it really is. I'm thinking of it as a tool to help me understand this. Really, this one particular manuscript, but I think that you know, it could, having read the Will's um, book on the Harley Psalter, you know, a, a similar approach to that and probably other manuscripts as well would be would be useful. So maybe maybe it's just that this. You know, if, we're t- if we want to think about something similar for printed books, really what we're thinking about is about doing it at a scale, and looking at patterns across things. And when we're talking, talking about manuscripts, we're talking about looking at individual books and making
2: arguments. No, I well, I think that you can look at individual books and make arguments. I truly, I, I think that you really can. Um, certainly in the fifteenth century, I just don't know enough about later. But I mean, I there are a couple of things to say when. So I wrote my PhD thesis on, on the Harley Salter. It took me about a year to realise, because I'm a bearish slow brain, that that the way the Harley Salter choirs were constructed, I could more or less prove that acquiring to the making of the Harley Salter, they decided to take a neutral salter apart and hand it out to different models to copy. It. And if and if I had, had something like this, you know, even though I'm a very slow brain, it would have been inordinately helpful. As I was wondering about that. A final thing, and, and uh, the other thing is, of course, that just suppose that you do this. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in any sense replacing the printed book, right? The only thing that makes any of this true would be by going back to an original copy and saying, yes, doing doing I'm not creating an alternative reality.
4: Well it's in fact a of visualization of just
3: theory. Right. <coughs> the real complexity with printed books is that you're not dealing with folio most of the time. You're dealing with sheets and the imposition yeah. schemes are very. <coughs> so an octavo it's not just an octavo, a it's not that. And without the evidence and the
2: So, so, so to give an example where I think I half understand the you've issue, got, you've got quarters, right? Quarters can be printed on half sheets or not, and you need to know whether they're printed on half sheets or not. And somehow you have to, when you're when you're doing your equation in the in the in the computer, you have to say, you know, this is the this is the, here's the choir structure. Well, I suppose this is the. This is the um, size of the paper. This is the choir structure. This, in this case, it's quarto. Match a quarto onto this, but more particularly, match half-sheet quartos onto this, and put it through the machine, and it's got to come out. And I think that that's a very tough nut to crack. And I think it's a tough nut to crack without having to worry about all the descriptive information that is in a printed printed, um, collation, a la Bowers now. I just think it's very complicated. And and, And I don't see, particularly since you've got images, and you can actually see what the... You're not reporting without pictures, you're reporting with pictures, so you can see the choir signatures in place but you don't need to record it, at least you don't need to record it that, and it'll make it an awful lot more easier for a computer to read.
0: I think on that note, we should thank Will for his stimulating, provocative presentation, Uh, and uh, we'd like to give you the poster from from your talk today, and remind everybody that there is, dare I say, a collation, that is to say, reception with drink and food in Alderman first floor, to which you are all most warmly invited. I saw the caterer setting up as we're going to.
3: And um, please join me in thanking Will.